Mark chapter four. I'm calling this morning's message. The servant and the mustard seed. Mark chapter four, beginning in verse 30. Then he that is Jesus said to what shall we liken the kingdom of God or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. In the fourth chapter of Mark, Jesus speaks to people in parables. The themes have included sowing in verses 1 through 20. And now Jesus returns to that theme in verses 30 through 34. Later, he's also talked about reaping in verses 26 through 29. The theme of trusting he'll talk about in verses 35 through 41. So Jesus begins his conversation relating in parables in verses 1 through 34. Later, he will reveal his power in verses 35 through 41. As you can imagine, the parables are sometimes difficult to understand. And make no mistake about it, they're difficult to teach. Yesterday, we had a men's conference which opened up with Pastor Chuck Smith and I was reminded hearing his voice how he encouraged us young pastors to not even attempt to teach the parables until we had been in the ministry at least 20 years. And now I understand why. Our minds aren't always open to multiple meanings, shades, nuances of meaning. And remember what the parable was meant to do. Remember the big idea of a parable. A parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. Also, remember the power of the parable. It has the ability both to reveal to those who want to see and to conceal from those who refuse to see. And so. The parable appears In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, Luke, chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, and now here in Mark's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the mustard seed is preceded and then succeeded by other parables with the same theme or the same subject. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus talks about the weeds among the wheat. He talks about the mustard seed and the birds. And then he talks about the parable of the yeast in all three weeds and wheat, the mustard seed and the yeast. They all contain six common elements in all three. There is what we would call a similitude or a comparison that includes the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Speaking of the earthly sphere of profession, both Real and unreal, both true and false. There is a man who seems to be represented by the Lord Jesus himself. 
And there's a field, that's number three, a, which is the world. Number four, there's seed, which is the word of God and its effect. And number five, there's growth or the expansion or the spread of the church's growth. And number six, in all three, there seems to be the presence of evil symbolized by weeds or birds or yeast. So in a very general sense, the parable of the mustard seed pictures the kingdom of God beginning very small and then becoming very large with limited influence. And that influence begins to spread humble beginnings, worldwide scope. As a matter of fact, if I had the ability to transport all of you back into time and you had no knowledge of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and I pointed to this itinerant preacher named Jesus and his humble followers, and I suggested to you that it would grow into a worldwide religion, you would all laugh. The idea of something so obscure becoming so important would have seemed impossible Now, remember, in the chapter, Jesus has introduced us to many principles and laws. We've talked about the law of radiance. Remember, the candle has to be allowed to shine in verses 21 and 22. The law of recompense. A man gets what he gives in verses 24 and 25. The law of reward and retribution. There's a harvest coming in verses 26 through 29. The laws of what we might call redemption or even perhaps reproduction. The kingdom will grow, it says in verse. 30 through 32. Vance Habner wrote, quote, as long as the church wore scars, they made headway. When they began to wear medals, the cause languished. It was a greater day for the church when Christians were fed to the lions than when they bought season tickets and sat in the grandstand. The humble beginnings, the faith filled beginnings The passionate beginnings would see seasons of apathy and indifference and even apostasy. The kingdom would grow. But does the parable warn of a shadow government of unbelievers and make believers and apostates who find shelter and food in a tree where they don't belong? Let's look. Look at the growth and the greatness of the kingdom in verse 30. Then he that is Jesus said to what shall we liken the kingdom of God or with what parable shall we picture it? Jesus asks a question and then he invites the hearer to enter into the parable and it becomes your invitation as well. He asks you not only to listen, but he invites you to participate in the story. He says, to what shall we liken or compare the kingdom of God? The NIV translates this. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or with what parable shall we use to describe it? In Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verse 31. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 13, verse 8. The question is just slightly different. And it's repeated in a different context. Now, some critical scholars and unbelievers suggest that 
these are at odds with one another or they contradict one another. But the suggestion that Jesus may have repeated his teachings in different place with different contexts seems to escape the critic. As a pastor and as a teacher, I know that there's no such thing as an old sermon. There's just new audiences. Just like there's no such thing as an old joke. Just a new audience. Hey, if you've never heard it, it can be just as funny. And so, it makes perfect sense that Jesus spoke at different times to different audiences with the same material with slight differences. And remember, we've already asked and answered the question, what is the kingdom of God? But let's revisit it just for a moment. Remember, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules and God reigns. It's the place where Jesus is Lord. The kingdom of God recognizes and then submits to the power and the authority of Jesus, the power and the authority of Jesus that we've already seen to vanquish demons, to heal the sick, to control nature, to forgive sin, to conquer death. This is the place where Jesus imparts to his followers the authority to proclaim God's truth, confound opposition, rebuke hypocrisy, clear the temple. And so what is the kingdom of God? Francois Finalon, who lived at the end of the the 15th century, the beginning of the 16th century, wrote, quote, to want all that God wants. And to always want it for all occasions and without reservations. This is the kingdom of God, which is all within. I love that. What is the kingdom of God? It's more than just a theological definition. It's for you to want what God wants and to always want it. At all times and under all circumstances. David Livingston, perhaps one of the great missionaries of all time, famous for his journey to Africa, said, quote, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. And by the way, before he went to Africa, he was fabulously wealthy. He had inherited a vast um, estate. By the way, we pray for it every time we pray a familiar prayer. You've prayed it. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Do you realize that when you pray that prayer, you're not simply praying for something, but you're inviting yourself to long for it. But do you really? Do you long for the kingdom inside of your heart? Let me ask you a question. Would you describe yourself as a citizen of Christ's kingdom? And if you would describe yourself as a citizen of Christ's kingdom, would you also describe yourself as subject to his sovereignty? And are you willing to work to expand his kingdom? Oh, make no mistake about it. I'm not suggesting even for a moment that you work for your salvation or that you work for grace or that you work for mercy because salvation is by grace alone through faith alone or mercy or forgiveness or reconciliation. But guess what? There does come a time when you're called upon to enter into service. 
And so the seed is sown on the earth. Look at verse 31. It says it is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. The Greek has grain, kokos, of mustard, sinapi. In what way is the kingdom of God like the mustard seed? You have to remember that in Jewish thinking, a mustard seed was very, very small. It became the absolute representation of that which was minuscule. And again, critical scholars have scoffed and said, well, Jesus is wrong. Technically, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed on the earth. How could Jesus make such a major blunder if he is, in fact, the creator of the universe and the author of life and the creator of all of the seeds? And let me help you with the answer. Jesus doesn't use the superlative, but rather a comparative. It probably would have been better to translate this, this where it says smaller than all the seeds as one of the smaller seeds. But can we justify that kind of translation? And the answer is yes. The adjective that Jesus uses, mikros. You know that word. We get the word microscope from it. Micro means Miniature and small and little. The Greek literally reads that the mustard seed is, quote, smaller than all the seeds that are upon the ground, unquote. That's the way the New American Standard actually translates the text. Jesus is using a figure of speech. It's called a rhetorical hyperbole. In other words, Jesus is using something to contrast something very small and something very large. You do it all the time. Every language on the planet Earth has what we call rhetorical hyperbole. You might be thinking, well, I don't ever remember saying anything like that. Well, if you've ever said, well, it's raining cats and dogs outside, you don't call up. The pound and go, there are animals being abused out there. They're falling from the sky. No, we're not talking literal dogs and literal cats. We're using a figure of speech. Sometimes even Jesus would exaggerate a point in order to make a point. And by the way, the mustard seed is the smallest seed used in the Middle East for consumption. And there becomes the key to the concept. In other words, Jews would use this plant. They would use the leaves for vegetation and for consumption. And they would use the mustard portion as a condiment. So the plant has been known to grow from the microscopic kind of Position, if you take a mustard seed and you put it in isolation, it can grow as tall as 15 feet and have a gigantic main stem sufficient to bear the weight of many birds. And like I said, it was used as a vegetable and as a condiment. It's barely visible to the naked eye. And the point that Jesus is making, how can something so small generate something so large. We see the example in everyday life. How, does it, how do human beings with just a sperm and an egg create a human being? How is it possible that something so small can become so great so quickly 
And again, if you, like me, have ever heard something, a simple sentence from the scripture. I remember when I was 16 years old and I heard someone say, quoting from John chapter 11, when Jesus was raising Lazarus from the dead, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, how can that simple sentence create such a profound effect on my life? I remember hearing those words and thinking, if Jesus can bring a dead body back to life, I wonder if he can take something so filthy and so rotten and so dead like my life and my heart and bring it back to life. That's the point. The seed sown in the ground or in this sterile earth. And by the way, mustard seed is mentioned five times in the scripture, twice in Matthew, twice in Luke, here in Mark, always having something to do with faith, like a grain of a mustard seed. By the way, if you ever have the privilege of going to the Holy Land or visiting Judea and the Galilee, you'll see the mustard plant. It has bright yellow flowers. And it's beautiful. And by the way, the earth is simply dirt. It's simply sterile. It's empty and it's barren until you put seed inside of it. The soil may refer in a singular fashion to the human heart. It may refer to the whole planet Earth. But what a picture of the human heart apart from mustard seed faith. Unfruitful, unproductive, dry, empty, depleted, impoverished. And so the kingdom comes into your heart and into your life. It expands and it grows. But is it a citadel or a sanctuary? Look at verse 32. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Once again, the image is of a small singular seed producing a gigantic bush. In the language of the passage, Jesus is drawing on several Old Testament images from Psalm 104, verse 12, and Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, and Ezekiel 31, 6, and Daniel chapter 4, verse 12. In the book of Psalms, birds and branches are singing happy songs. Plants bring forth boughs, bear fruit. Under it, the birds of every sort dwell, according to Psalm 104. In the shadow of the branches they dwell, it says in Ezekiel 17, 23. So what is Jesus saying? Once again, Jesus is describing the small, humble beginnings, the paucity of origin, the greatness of progress, the magnitude of the kingdom. Now, think about that for just a moment. Think about the origins of Christianity. A rabbi, an itinerant preacher, gathers a following, performs miracles for three and a half years on the countryside of Judea, and 1.8 billion people on the planet Earth now identify themselves in some way as Christians. There are tens of millions of people who describe their purpose in life as to serve Jesus and to serve Jesus alone. 
potentates and politicians and armies and generals were controlling the ancient world, but their bodies are dust. They are unrecognizable. No one knows who they are except for scholars and history geeks. Yeah, I'm one of those geeks. Yeah, I am one of those people who can tell you all 12 Caesars for the first hundred years. Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Caligula, Claudius, Nero. And then the Civil War takes place. Vitellius, Otho. And then Vespasian. And then Vespasian has a son named Titus who builds the Roman Colosseum. And Titus is killed by his brother Domitian who commits suicide. That's 12. But guess what? People don't gather on Sunday morning and go, dude, let's hear it for Augustus. Whoa. People just don't do that. You want to know why? Because they don't matter. No one follows Caesar or cares about the Roman prefect who governed in Judea. Napoleon wondered if any Roman emperor could rule from the grave the way Jesus does. And I would take exception to what Napoleon has said, because guess what? Jesus doesn't rule from the grave. He rules from a throne in heaven. He's alive. Jesus is alive right at this very moment. Napoleon said, I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Nations pass away, thrones crumble, but the church, she remains. He's right. That's exactly right. No wonder when Jesus says greater than all the herbs. He's talking about garden plants. We use the word herb usually to mean something with culinary value or medicinal value. And I'm not talking about medical marijuana dispensaries. That's not what I'm talking about. Plant actually fits the meaning of the text. The Greek word is lakanos. It's derived from a Greek verb, lakaino. Actually, in the ancient world, it meant to dig with your hands in the ground. And so it speaks of a garden. It speaks of a medicinal garden or a culinary garden. And the expression nest means to tent or to camp down. And so the kingdom seems to be represented as an organic whole, the source of blessing, shelter, food, the seed which is sown. It grows up, but it becomes a lesson for each and every one of us. The gospel seed, ever so small, but ever so powerful. By the way, the size of the seed doesn't discourage the farmer from sowing the seed. And we're reminded of what we've already learned, that the problem isn't the seed or the sower. It's always the soil. But with the right soil, under the right circumstances, There's going to be something powerful that takes place. The farmer knows the hidden potential locked away in the seed. And the farmer understands the potential for growth and the power that the fruit has to those who consume it. And note something else. The power is in the seed. It's not in the person who plants the seed. I try to be as fun as I possibly can and... 
I clearly want to be as persuasive as I can. But guess what? No matter what I say and no matter what I do, it can never replace the power of God's word inside of your heart, working, molding, shaping, maneuvering. Do you feel small? Do you feel insignificant? But here's part of the point. No matter how small we are, no matter how significant our ministry, we can sow the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you will sow that seed in your children, in your grandchildren, or you won't. You'll sow it to your neighbors and to your friends. You will make a powerful difference or you won't. Do you remember what the psalmist wrote? They that sow in tears will reap in joy. He that goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That's Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. Some of you growing up remember singing a song. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We will come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. What's a sheave? The sheep is the harvest that has been cut down. It's the fruit that you present at market. That's what the sheep is. It's the growth. It's the fruit. It's the reward in Hosea. We read in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. What are you sowing in your life? Ignorance, apathy, indifference. What are you sowing in your life? Something in which to rejoice in? Are you sowing grace and mercy and love? Is that becoming a part of your life? By the way, does the tree represent the church or does it represent the government of the church or does it represent the branches of the church? Is it talking about Catholicism versus Protestantism? Does the tree represent the head of the church, Jesus, who's therefore and ultimately in charge of its growth and spread? Does the tree represent the church's sphere of influence or salvation? Clearly, the church grows. It provides shelter, benefits, protection to all people. Believer, make believer. Unbeliever, remember in the Old Testament, the Bible speaks of a sun that shines on the just and the unjust. As a matter of fact, Paul gives us a little clue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, where Paul basically writes, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Rarely will a whole month go by on my radio program where somebody doesn't call me and ask me about that verse. Well, what does this verse mean? Does it mean that an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife or unbelieving children can somehow be brought to belief because of their believing parents or their believing spouse? And the answer is no, that's not what it says. Each person has a responsibility to enter into a right relationship with God by themselves. They have to hear the claim of Christ, consider it, repent of their own sin and receive salvation. So what does the text mean? 
It means that if you have a believing wife or a believing husband, children, if you have believing parents, you have a blessing. There is grace in your home and mercy in your home and love in your home and benefits for your home. The birds feast on the fruit of the tree. And the very fact the tree or bush is present with so many benefits means that a lot of people are going to show up at the table. You know, the church of Jesus Christ begins with a resurrected Savior who ascends into heaven and the small group explodes across the surface of the Mediterranean and within two generations occupies the known world. In his wonderful book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born?, D. James Kennedy, along with my new friend Jerry Newcomb, gives a sketch of what the world would have been like if Jesus had never been born. And a thumbnail sketch and overview would include things like there would be no hospitals. Why? Guess what? Christians were the ones who invented hospitals. It was Christian men and women wanting to minister to the sick who basically began the concept of hospitalization. Since hospitals came about by Christians in the Middle Ages, universities also came by Christians in the Middle Ages. Most of the world's greatest universities were started by Christians for Christians with the purpose of elevating Jesus and reaching the world. Guess what? The world should be thankful to Christianity because it's Christianity that brought literacy and education for the masses. Capitalism and free enterprise. Representative government. Some people might say, oh, I thought that was invented in Greece. It was invented in Greece, but not the way you experience with the separation of powers. Make no mistake about it. No Christ, no Bible, no church. There would be no such thing as representative government. As you understand it. As a matter of fact, Christianity has more to do with civil liberties than anyone else. The abolition of slavery, both in antiquity and modern times. Modern science. The discovery of the new world by Columbus. The elevation of women. Benevolence and charity. The good Samaritan ethic. Higher standards of justice. Elevation of the common man. The condemnation of adultery, homosexuality, other sexual perversions, including child sexual assault and sexual trafficking. It's all happened because Christians Christians were there to try and make it go away. And I wish I could say that it's completely gone, but that wouldn't be true. It's Christianity that gave us a high regard for humanity. It's Christianity that gave us the civilizing of barbarian and primitive cultures. Do you realize Russian people would not be able to read and write if it weren't for Christian missionaries who left Greece and went to Russia and translated their language and created an alphabet so that they could translate one book. It's called the Bible. Can you imagine? No Jesus. No New Testament. About the absence of art and music and inspiration. And not to mention the lives transformed from liabilities into assets because of the gospel. Not to mention eternal salvation for every tribe and tongue and kindred and every generation in all parts of the world. Do you ever remember seeing the movie? 
It's a Wonderful Life with Jeremy Stewart. Remember, he he has this situation where he wishes he had never been born and he winds up falling off a into a bridge, into the water, and he's given this picture of his life as if he had never existed. There are people who wish that Jesus had never existed and that Christianity never existed. Nietzsche wrote, I condemn Christianity. I bring against the Christian church the most terrible of all accusations that an accuser has ever had in his mouth. It is to me the greatest of all imaginable corruptions. It seeks to work the ultimate corruption, the worst possible corruption. The Christian church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has turned every value into worthlessness and every truth into a lie and every integrity into the baseness of soul, unquote. Do you know what happened to him? He eventually went crazy, sane. And you know who stood by his side? Every moment of every day, the last weeks and months of his life, it was his Christian mother. His Christian mother held his hand. His Christian mother prayed for him. His Christian mother interceded for him. In Mein Kampf, Hitler blamed the church for perpetuating the ideas and laws of the Jews. Hitler wanted to completely uproot Christianity. Once he had finished uprooting the Jews, imagine the wicked scholars who used the term Christian to describe him. You know what Nietzsche and Hitler had in common? They both wished that Jesus had never been born and that Christianity never existed Think about Robert Ingersoll. Think about Lenin. Think about Stalin. Think about Mao. Think about Oprah. You know what they all have in common? They all wish that Jesus had never been born and that Christianity didn't exist. And now Stephen Hawking. Some people have suggested that the birds represent the presence of an expanding evil. It's true earlier in the passage. It was the birds that came and took away the seeds. Sorry, bird lovers. But the reality is that if you do a careful study of birds in nature, you'll discover that almost every bird that exists consumes not once, not twice, but sometimes three and four times its own body weight, just like sin. Sin is a parasite. Now, to be fair, not all biblical interpreters suggest that the birds are evil. Some suggest that the birds represent mankind and the benefits that derive to humanity from the presence of the church on the earth. And I can't dispute that. The earth is a better place because Jesus is here and because Christianity is here. But there seems to be some evidence that the church wouldn't remain pure. The parable of the mustard seed is probably a prediction and a warning. The mustard bush finds both believers and make-believers. Those who confess Jesus and profess Jesus, they make their way into churches. But they don't really love him. The birds nest. The bush becomes 
grand central station for all kinds of false teachers. So is the church of Jesus a citadel of faith, hope and love? Or is it a bird sanctuary with all kinds of freaky fledglings and crazy cagelings and birds of prey rather than birds that pray? Hey, by the way, the next time someone says to you, I think church is for the birds. Just turn to Mark chapter four and say, how do you know so much about the Bible? When you look out, what do you see? Do you see an overgrown monstrosity filled with institutional apostasy? Or do you see a virgin bride waiting for her husband? William Hendrickson summarizes the parable this way. He says, quote, in the parable of the sower, that's verses three through nine and 13 through 20. The emphasis was on human responsibility in that of the seed growing in secret. That's verses 26 through 29 on divine sovereignty. When these two cooperate, man working out his own salvation because God is working in him both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure, abundant growth results. As in the parable of the mustard seed. Seeds grow. But make no mistake about it. In order for a seed to grow. The seed has to be planted. Redemption. Reproduction. Go hand in hand. So what do we learn from this? Don't despise the day of small beginnings. You know, when I was a kid, we would do. Science experiments. My mother would fill a quart jar with water and she would take food coloring. There would be green and there would be red and there would be yellow. And she would allow me to put one drop of the food coloring into the quart jar. Only one drop of food coloring will affect all the water. And guess what? When you contribute a little grace and a little mercy and a little love and a little faith, all of a sudden your surroundings begin to change color. Whatever else the parable implies, it is that the kingdom of God will grow and expand. And whatever else the parable implies... It is that the church is big enough to accommodate people from every race and every color and every culture. The church is made up of all people who embrace historical biblical Christianity. The church is big enough to accommodate the differences of opinion and the multitude of expression. But let me be clear. The church will never be less than what Jesus says. It will never be more than what the Bible teaches. John Wesley used to say, we think and we let think. He wrote, I have no more right to object to a man holding a different opinion from mine than I have to differ from a man because he wears a wig and I wear my own hair. I know the illustration has gone way out of style because if guys wear wigs, it's a whole nother issue. Wesley had a greeting. He would say, Is thy heart my heart? 
then give me thy hand. You know what that means? Do you love Jesus the way I love Jesus? Do you embrace Jesus the way I embrace Jesus? Do you love him and serve him? Then we belong together. You know, it's good for a man to have assurance that he's right. But there's no reason why he should have the conviction that everyone else is wrong. Is it possible I've missed something in this parable? Quite possibly. But be generous. Because it might be saying way more than I've said. But if you've heard nothing. If you've gotten nothing. If you've received nothing. Then maybe the parable is doing exactly what the parable was meant to do. To reveal truth to some. And to conceal it from others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray that as men and women of God, that we would be grateful for the influence that we can have on our children and our grandchildren. Lord, that we can be grateful for the influence that we can have on a world that doesn't necessarily love you and some of them even hate you. Lord, we're, we've never been more aware that we live in a world where some people not only wish Jesus had never been born and wish Christianity never existed. But Lord, who completely don't understand what it is that they're saying or the consequences of what they're saying. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be salt and light. Lord, we pray that we would be used by you. To remind people that sin is a problem and Jesus is still the Savior. And so, Lord, again, we commit our lives afresh to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.